Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This is podcast number 135 for March 22nd, 2009. It looks like the Nigerian crooks are moving south, or at least pretending to. The fraudsters seem to have moved on to... South Africa. But now their email comes from Mexico with an address in Venezuela. They send an attachment that you need Word to open, which, believe me, I did very carefully. And then they use such garish colors that you'd swear the thing was written by a first grader. Seriously, how does anybody fall for one of these things? The message that was in my inbox claimed to be from a Venezuelan address, but the actual email address is in Mexico. Of course, it didn't come from either address. And except for open attachment in all capital letters, there was no message. Now, just what kind of a fool would open an attachment from an unknown person and stop looking at me that way? First of all, the attachment claimed to be an RTF document. That's a plain text document. It's kind of the word processor interchange format. If it were blood, it would be typo. It's all ASCII, if I can believe the extension anyway. So it can't harm my computer. But I really don't believe the extension. So instead, I first opened the file in UltraEdit. UltraEdit is a plain text editor. If this happens to be a Word file disguised as an RTF, and if it has a macro in it, UltraEdit won't run the macro. Well, it turned out that it really was an RTF file. No nasty macro hiding behind what claimed to be a plain vanilla file. So it was safe to open in Word. And so I did. It was a message shouting at me in all capital letters. And what was the offer? Well, typical Nigerian spam, but wow, the colors, bright blue, garish purple. Would anyone who got this far actually believe any of what the writer said? According to the writer, my immediate attention is needed to execute this urgent deal. The telephone number at the bottom of the letter has a country code of 27. That is South Africa. But that's about the first, last, and only bit of truth in the document. The letter tells me that it's been written by the manager of a security company in South Africa with the name of Mr. Samuel Gino. I have to wonder what the writer's name is. The company's name is Mr. Samuel Gino, so he said, but maybe that was just a dangler. The company that employs him has had a consignment package in storage for quite some time, and the company would like to get rid of it. Well, of course the company wants to get rid of it. They don't know what's in it. So the writer, being far more clever than his employers, was able to discover what was in the box, and he was able to find the owner. From every studies and indications, we have found out that the consignment belongs to one deceased, Mr. Mohammed Agwal of Pakistan, who died in jail of drug trafficking offense. Now, of course, our dear correspondent then decided to confidentially unlock the consignment, and he found that it contained raw cash. 
I suppose that's better than cooked cash or chopped liver. Then my correspondent told me that I could claim U.S. $12 million, or as he put it, 12 million United State dollars, if I simply claim to be the next of kin to the deceased Pakistani drug lord who died in jail. Nice hook. What patriotic American would feel bad about stealing ill-gotten gains from some bastardly Pakistani drug trafficker? So what am I going to get? Well, I could get 30% of the 12 million United States dollar. To do that, I simply need to provide my full name, my phone and fax number, my home address for delivery, my age and my occupation. And then, as the letter says, as soon as the above information is received, we shall commence diplomatic cargo of the consignment to your destination. My correspondent's claimed email address is samuelgino 2terracomve So I might possibly wonder why someone from South Africa has a Venezuelan email address but a South African telephone number. Do I expect to become extremely wealthy in the next few weeks? Did I reply to the message? The answer to both questions is a single word. No. Thumbs Plus is one of those programs that sees some use just about every week as I work on accounts for TechBiter Worldwide because it makes the process of creating the small images I use on the web page and the larger images that pop up when you click one of the small images easy. But that's just the beginning. Thumbs Plus has continued to evolve with each new version, and even though I usually avoid installing or reviewing beta applications, I'm breaking that rule for Thumbs Plus 8, but I installed it on a notebook computer. Why not on the desktop? Okay, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. Beta software arrives with a stern warning. This is beta software. Do not expect it to be complete and do not use it for production work. Beta software usually times out and stops working, and Beta 1 did that, although Sirius Software quickly issued a patch that allowed it to continue working during the few weeks required to complete Beta number 2. That could have been a serious problem if I'd installed it on my production machine. As of now, they're at Beta 3, and a lot of the new features are working. Some still are not. This review is based primarily on the second and third beta versions. The interface is now dark. I like this. It's a particularly good choice when you're dealing with photographs because it allows you to concentrate on the photo, not the interface. And you can preview typefaces in addition to photos and some movie files. Support for Adobe's extensible metadata platform, XMP, a labeling technology that allows users to embed information about an image in the file itself, that's been added. This kind of information is known as metadata because all Adobe applications understand XMP. Important information about an image can be carried all the way through from design to development to production. And it's nice to have this capability in an external program such as Thumbs Plus. The ability to rotate to a reference line is new, and it's a high-end feature that's really pretty surprising to find in Thumbs Plus. If you want to see what I mean by this, there's an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You tell Thumbs Plus that you want to rotate an image, 
and then it will ask you to draw a line on the photograph that represents either a horizontal or a vertical line. And then you tell Thumbs Plus to rotate to make that line vertical or horizontal. This doesn't always make a picture better, by the way, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Another plus, Unicode is now supported. This isn't a particularly important feature for users in English-speaking countries where all the needed alphabet letters are defined as part of the ASCII standard, but Unicode is becoming a standard for computer applications because it represents text from languages that use other character sets. Unicode can represent most of the world's writing systems because its character set includes more than 100,000 characters. And there's the ability for Thumbs Plus to back up its own database. This is relatively unimportant if you have a good backup system in place, but if you don't, it's at least a first line of defense against problems caused by a corrupted database. Promised for the release version will be the ability to view FTP sites in the tree. That's not yet working. It will be a very helpful feature when the application is released. The user interface is improved, and there are additional options for the user to customize the interface, along with the ability to select an appropriate color rendering model. So based on this early look of the new version of Thumbs Plus 8, I predict that users will welcome the new look and the new features. A listener was having a problem with his computer. He said that he agreed with backing up, and he'd purchased a Seagate external hard drive. It works fine for the desktop. When I got the laptop, I used an ampersand in the name when setting it up, and it will not work because of that. So I need to rename the laptop, but I've not been able to find out how to do this. There are a couple of places where a computer can be named. So my first answer was this one. Right-click My Computer on the desktop and choose Properties. If you don't display My Computer on the desktop, you can choose System from the control panel to get there. Next, you want to select the Computer Name tab and click Change. Type a new name and then click OK until you've closed all the windows. You may at that point need to reboot the machine for the change to be effective. Well, as I said, that was my first answer. It turned out to be the wrong answer. When you get a new computer and start setting it up, Windows asks you to give the computer a name. And that was the name that needed to be changed. Well, that's a little more difficult, and you need to edit the registry. Actually, there are two possibilities here. You might be wanting to change the registered username or the account name of the current user. So, let's take a look first at changing the registered username. From the Start menu, you choose Run, then type RegEdit, and click Run. Needless to say, if you're doing that, you're going to be very, very careful in the registry. You'd want to click on the plus sign next to HKEY LOCAL MACHINE to expand that section, then click on the plus next to SOFTWARE to expand that, then Microsoft, then Windows NT. Then you click on the folder titled Current Version, not the plus sign, but just the name of the folder. Now you move over to the right side of the screen, scroll down until you see Registered Owner. Double-click the words Registered Owner, and a dialog box opens. There will be a white entry area entitled Value Data. You'll type the new name there. Then you close the registry by clicking on the X box located in the top right corner of the screen. You'll have to reboot the computer for that change to take effect for Windows XP. And before you do anything with the registry, it's a good idea to back up the registry just in case. 
But it also occurred to me that you might be asking about the username under Users and Accounts. If that's the case, that's a real easy one. Go to Start, Settings, Control Panel, User Accounts. Select the appropriate username from the list of available users and click Change My Name. When dealing with computers, a sense of humor is more than helpful. It is essential. Email and websites can provide some unintended levity. For example, what happens if you have a Google browser trying to access Google Mail and you get a Google error? You can see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And then there was a story on the Washington Post's website. ran a story about a 20th person being charged in the Jack Abramoff scandal. Juxtaposed to that story was a Google ad for a lobbyist who will do, and I quote the ad, whatever it takes. And below that, an ad from somebody who claims to already have received more than $27,000 in government stimulus checks and wants to show you how you can cash in two fraud surrounding fraud. Spam illiteracies are always kind of amusing, too. I found a fake ad for a drugstore that offers its customers exclusive benefits because it's a huge company with absolute superb service. It's such a huge company, in fact, that it has to use a free GeoCities web hosting account, and it doesn't even have its own domain to send mail from. And then there was the ad offering to grow your manhood. It showed a photo of a toilet with a woman's picture on the wall next to the toilet. And how about the address at the bottom of the ad? West 426th Street in New York City. Streets in Manhattan end at 218th Street. For New York City, streets extend only to 263rd Street or thereabouts up in the Bronx. So if 426th Street did exist... It would be in Ardsley, Elmsford, or most likely Terrytown. And 770 West, that would put the address about in the middle of the Hudson River, if not in New Jersey. But then there was the zip code, 12540. That belongs to LaGrangeville, New York, about 60 miles north of New York City, in the mountains. It appears to have about a dozen streets and maybe a traffic light. And one more, the link that was provided... Well, that goes to a website in, this will be a big shock, China. In Nerdly News, this would be a very good time to visit Adobe's website. If you have any version of Acrobat installed on your computer, make sure you get to Adobe's website right away. If you've used an Adobe product in the past 24 hours, it's probably already run an update for you. But you need to obtain an update that patches critical vulnerabilities in Adobe Reader 9 and Acrobat 9 and earlier versions of those applications. Unless you've already installed version 9.1 of Acrobat or the Reader, do make it a point to visit the Adobe website at your earliest opportunity. The vulnerabilities could allow attacker to crash the application in a way that allows the attacker to take control of your system. You really don't want that. Adobe has released the Adobe Reader 9.1 and Acrobat 9.1 product updates to resolve the problem. If you're using a version 9 product, you should immediately upgrade to 9.1. Updates are also available for users of versions 7 and 8. If you're using an earlier version, you're out of luck. And if you're using a Linux or Unix version, you'll have to wait a few more days for their update. 
Users who have already updated to version 9.1 on Windows or Mac computers do not need to take any additional actions. And if you'd like more information, check the Adobe website. There's a link to the specific portion of the Adobe website that addresses this issue from the TechBiter Worldwide website. On April Fool's Day, the Conficker worm will do whatever it's supposed to do. Several million people worldwide will discover what it's supposed to do all at about the same time. Estimates put the number of infected machines at 12 million. How many of the owners of those machines have removed the worm isn't known. The good news for users in the United States is this. Most of the infected machines are not located in the United States. And if you have a legitimate copy of Windows with up-to-date patches and you have a current antivirus application installed, you, your computer, and your computer's data are all probably safe and secure. If not, well, consider this a warning. You've got a few days between now and April 1st. Over time, the Conficker worm has become a lot more sophisticated. In some cases, it can remove antivirus applications and even shut off Microsoft's update service. It's also been shown to be able to open ports in a firewall and to block attempts to connect to security websites. But what's going to happen on April Fool's Day? Researchers have unwound this thing enough to know that it will generate tens of thousands of domain names and then try to communicate with or through them. The worm will set up a peer-to-peer -peer network. All that is known. What isn't known is the purpose of all this work. Chances are good that whoever is behind it isn't just seeking a little notoriety. Organized crime is the likely source of Conficker, and that means they'll be trying to monetize the system somehow, possibly by using all those machines as part of a huge spam bot network, or maybe something worse. In any event, we'll find out in about a week. The latest version of Microsoft's Internet Explorer is now available, having run the beta version of the browser on three computers and having removed it from three computers. I'll probably be waiting just a little while to install the new version. The primary problem I saw probably has been fixed by now, but the last beta would routinely just stop responding. It didn't lock the entire computer up, but the only way to get the browser to function again was to go to the task manager kill it, and start over. Internet Explorer has copied some of the better features from Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and Opera. I found the look and feel to be quite good, at least when it was working. But my preferred browser is Firefox because of all the add-ons that allow me to custom build a browser. Chrome is my second choice because it has a nice, clean design. And I like Opera for some of its designer geek features. I use Internet Explorer only when some poor, misguided developer has designed a site that requires Internet Explorer. At one time, Microsoft Internet Explorer had nearly 100% of the browser market, but now it's estimated to be in the high 70% range. Firefox continues to inch upward even with the advent of Chrome. Chrome now has about 2% of the market. Except for when it stops responding entirely, IE8 was significantly faster than previous versions of IE, it starts considerably faster than Firefox, but then everything, including molasses in January, starts faster than Firefox. The good news for developers is that with IE8, Microsoft seems to really, finally, 
have adopted design standards instead of trying to push its own features onto the rest of the Internet. But IE8 has a compatibility feature that allows it to digest all of the hacks that designers had to create to allow their sites to work properly with earlier versions of IE. My recommendation? Wait a few months. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.